Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, March the 1st, 2020. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check out the show all the time at the thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at MikeSilvaMedia. And you can get the show on Spotify, iTunes, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. You want to send me an email, I'd love to hear from you. Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. Welcome to the program, everybody, and I got a real jam-packed show for you today. And just a little bit, former big league infielder, also you hear him on the MLB Network, has a new book out. The book is State of Play, the old school guide to new school baseball. Bill Ribkin will be joining me. You'll hear about the book. And a lot of the baseball principles that Bill talks about, which are also tenets of what we here at the Talking Mets podcast, at least I do, really hold true. You know, although I I see myself as someone who has evolved in my thought process of baseball, I also hold a lot of balanced views when it comes to looking at the game through an analytical prism as well as uh, a common sense, maybe what you would call old school prism. So I think Bill and I discuss, I had a chance to catch up with him earlier in the week, I think Bill and I discuss a lot of things that will help you understand kind of my thought process and how I look at the game and, and in turn really look at how or why the Mets do something or the organization does something well or not well or or how I would do things and so on and so forth. So 
highly recommend the the book. The book is a, a an interesting read, and Bill has some interesting things to say. So you'll hear from him in uh, just a minute. Now, uh, also joining me, he just came back from Florida, Port St. Lucie. We're going to try to get different live from Port St. Lucie perspectives throughout the month of March. Rich Mancuso, Elite Sports New York. Rich is a friend of the program. He'll join us and give us a a brief uh, report back as to what he saw being live at the front line in Port St. Lucie, which really has been a serene camp when you think about it. You know, some injuries, J.D. Davis scare earlier in the week, which looks to be, you know, oh, he looks to be okay. There's been some issues with uh, Brandon Nimmo, with the heart, and I think it's a little ridiculous that the guy's got to go out there and give you his personal heart health situation and I mean, if he doesn't, then everybody speculates, but that's another story for another day. Yeah, the, maybe the Ioannis Cespedes controversy where he didn't talk to the media, and we talked about it a little last week, and, and the podcast came out before he actually talked to the media. So uh, that became much to do about nothing. I wonder if our the new manager here, Luis Rojas, had something to do with kind of saying, hey, Ioannis, go, go talk to the media. Say, say nothing, but give them enough to get them off your back. So, very quiet spring, not good for the clicks. I know that probably dis- disappoints some people in the uh, the working press. I mean, Ken Davidoff of The Post actually made a comment about it in an article uh, just yesterday. I think it's great. It's about baseball. It's about preparing for the season. And I think you got to give, so far to date, credit to Brody Van Wagenen, to Luis Rojas. You can't get much crazier than January and maybe parts of the offseason were uh, and parts of late, late last season between the manager situation, Callaway, Van Wagenen's first year on the job, and and all the other stuff that's going on. So it's good to see that serene, competent, uh, you know, thus far mostly injury-free spring for the Mets. Still very early in spring training. We're not even near the dog days of spring training. Now, there's one thing that I think came out this week that we had broached on the podcast a few weeks back, but really didn't take it seriously but could potentially be, as you look at the 26-man roster, to me really is is pretty much set. Uh, yeah, you have yourself your uh, you know your Ryan Cordells and your Max Maroffs and your uh, Jake Hagers, these these young players who are versatile and provide some skill set that can make them a valuable 26th man or bench player. Assuming that a Uenis Cespedes or a Jed Lowry can't make the roster, or there's some other kind of injury that we don't know about right now. So it's good to see that the Mets have maybe accumulated some depth. I also think from a starting pitching depth situation, David Peterson, uh, the former top pick, has actually early on has come back with some impressive results. And look, we've talked about this. You need seven, eight, nine, sometimes 10 starters to get through a season. So it's going to be important for the David Petersons of the world or some of the other young, maybe a Thomas's Puki, as he develops, you know, who can be those young starters that when the Mets have a doubleheader, when the Mets have an injury, they're going to happen. Last year, you had a, a great string of health, which uh, may be unprecedented in a lot of ways, maybe unfair, even with uh, the development and, and the point in their careers where some of these starters are, you still may need to give them some time off for nagging injuries. The Walker Lockets weren't really guys that impressed you. But the Mets never had to dive too deep past starter number six or seven. So then that brings up, well, you know, look at what they did this offseason. They did bring in Porcello. They brought in Michael Waka. They have Steven Matz. So right now they already have six starters for five positions. Somebody's going to come out of the bullpen. I had mentioned uh, 
And this story started to come out this week, and I wonder, and we'll ask Rich Mancuso when he comes on, his thoughts, if there's any legs to it, that you could start to play some matchups when it comes down to the fifth spot. And you can start to see, well, if Matz is a guy that struggles on the road, do you pitch him more at City Field? Do you keep him away from certain lineups in certain situations? As you get along the season, you kind of get a feel when a pitcher is in the back end of the rotation and they, they give you those inconsistencies where they're going to struggle, what lineups they're going to struggle against. You know, sometimes it could even be a series in a situation where you're like, hey, we've lost the first two games of a series. This team is hot. This is a bad matchup for Matt. You know, do we, you know, go out there and use Waka in that situation? Or do you kind of just use him once or twice through the right part of the lineup? I am against the opener, and that's where this is all going, the whole opener. And can you play matchups with the fifth starter? I'm against that in a lot of ways. And I think the main reason is because I think from a preparation standpoint, it messes with the pitcher. And and Matt's talked about this yes, actually yesterday about how he gets into his routine, his tossing routine, his preparation routine. And just because you're saying, hey, you're pitching six innings, but you're starting those six innings in the second or third inning, does it matter? Well, I, I think it does because every starter goes through a routine and now... How long do those first one or two innings take before Matt's uh, gets in the lineup? Does it really matter that he's not facing maybe once the top of the lineup or some of those tough players? And I also think from a standpoint of, especially because I, I'm a little higher on Matt's than others. In some cases, I might be higher on Matt's than Porcello. And I know Porcello's the veteran, and he's a guy that's won a Cy Young, and he's been in the postseason and had more experience than uh, uh, Matt's. I mean, I see Porcello as a guy whose upside is, at this point in his career, league average to slightly above league average, can give you, and here's the key part, can give you top-of-the-rotation performances at times, but it's not something I would expect. So I looked at him more as the veteran fifth starter. Looks like the Mets have him moved up a little bit to number four, and then you have your Mats Waka, and Waka, clearly with his injury history, he's the one that has the biggest question mark out of all the starters. So you might be getting more long relief out of him, spot starts, and, and what have you. So when you start to talk about matchups and maybe putting Lugo in as an opener or using Waka as the opener or kind of piggybacking you know, uh, Mats and Waka to get through maybe uh, you know six or seven innings, uh, you're starting to mess around a little bit with guys who traditionally have not done that. And all these guys, including Waka, have pitched at high levels in their careers where I'm assuming every one of them believes they can be a top-of-the-rotation starter. So it is intriguing. It's a nice problem to have. I think ultimately, whatever the role these pitchers have are going to be put in, I think they need to accept it, understand it, and have to have a routine and a preparation that makes them have the ability to be successful. These are not stratomatic cards. These are players. And if there is going to be a situation of matchups or opener or piggybacking back-to-back, whatever the Mets decide is the right thing to do. And it doesn't have to be the same blueprint from day one to the end of the year. It could even be for a stretch. Do they accept it? Are they able to be successful in it? And can they prepare to be as good as they can be? Because that's what this is going to come down to. All the little boring things that make for really bad podcasting, really bad radio, really bad newspapers, really bad whatever, websites, clicks, media, is the baseball things that make for a winning team. It really comes down to it. And when it's all said and done, it is now in the boring days of spring training. I know that 
you know, sometimes you go into these spring training uh, games and you would like to see wins and you would like to see the team play well. And certainly wins and winning matters no matter where you are. You may not be playing to win. You may not be putting players in or the players may not be playing, whether they're pitching or they're approaching the at-bat for a, a winning environment. They're getting ready for the season. You still want to win. But in the end, what it's really about is getting ready for opening day, which is about three and a half or so weeks away. And that's where all these little things right now have to be planted. And that's where the conversations that Luis Rojas has to have and what have you. So it'll be interesting to see what uh, the Mets decide to do, who wins the fifth starter spot. So far, everybody's pitched well. You have some interesting depth there with David Peterson. We'll see how that continues. Uh, the young uh, uh, pitcher for early round pick that has sometimes been forgotten about because he's had maybe not so exciting minor league results. Sometimes we focus on the pitchers that are not in the system who are traded away. Then all of a sudden somebody in the system excites you and comes out. So uh, a lot to get to. We have Rich Mancuso in just a few minutes, Elite Sports New York. Later on, Bill Ribkin, MLB Network, new uh, book, State of Play. The old school guide to new school baseball. A lot of things for Bill to talk about. Bill and I had a great conversation earlier in the week, and I can't wait for you to hear that. And a jam-packed podcast ahead of us. So let's take a quick break, and when we come back, Rich Mancuso, Elite Sports New York. Let's get him live from Port St. Lucie. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon. And enjoy the rest of the show. And joining me is Rich Mancuso, Elite Sports New York. Uh, you guys know Rich. He's a friend of the program. He was down in Port St. Lucie for a little bit this week. So let's get our first live look in from Port St. Lucie. Rich, welcome to the program. And, and I said in the open that it's been a serene camp for the Mets after yeah, an offseason of ownership, uh, change in manager, ownership, a lot of craziness, a lot of off-the-field stuff. Some of the Uranus Cespedes stuff popped up early. Uh, it's been about baseball. It's been about baseball, and it's about the new manager, and it's about the GM finally having his people in charge, and it's a good thing. Welcome to the program, and I, and I feel good that we could finally talk some baseball. Can't believe opening day is almost three weeks. It was like yesterday, yesterday was like Mike that Tom Smith hit that walk off home run. The season was over. And we're back at it. Right. And right. yeah, it's baseball. I don't want to hear no more about scandals and manager changes and Mets ownership changes and Cespedes on or off the field. You know, they're playing ball, they're playing the games, and they're getting ready for opening day. And uh, that's what we got to talk about. I also mentioned in the open that this is a roster. The 26 men are pretty much set. Yeah, Lowry yeah. and his health and Cespedes and his health. And there's some interesting guys that have been talked about, and we'll get to that, uh, you know, guys that may be depth pieces. But the one thing that came up, and I had broached this topic earlier in the spring, and it was a throwaway on a podcast, but it's become a little bit more real, was the idea to use the fifth starter spot 
as kind of a fluid situation. Maybe play them on matchups, Waka and Mats. Maybe do an opener, which I'm not a big fan of. But be a little bit more fluid. And actually, the idea was the Mets to have six starters as an everyday thing without screwing around with DeGrom and Syndergaard and Stroman and, and probably Porcello. What are your thoughts on that? How real is that? And, and, and what, are you, what are your thoughts? I don't think that that's the strategy that the Mets will go with, Mike. And, you, you know, you, you always need pitching, especially early in the game. We're talking April. And, you know, then you don't know who might get hurt. and Hopefully that's not going to happen. But I think that the, the idea of a six-man or even an open is out of the question. I think the emphasis is in that bullpen. One of those guys will definitely be in the pen. We're talking Walker, maybe not Porcello. And uh, because that's the Mets need, the bullpen, which everybody's going to be looking at right away out of the gate. So I think the emphasis there is going to be to stick with the five-man. An open, I have never heard anything about that being discussed. Uh, You know, you hear it, but it's nothing strong. And I don't think it's something the Mets would ever do. I don't think they're in that uh, category of doing an open because uh, they're pretty much set, as you just said. They're pretty much set just about even, you know, with the pitching and just a matter of who's going to fill out the bullpen spots. And uh, Walker, is, uh, if he's not starting, that's the guy that'll be out of the pen. That'll be the other guy. So uh, I do not see six men being a part of their rotation. It's never been a big thing in the, with the Mets over the years. And I don't expect that to be this year either. Rich Mancuso, Elite Sports NY. Uh, you can check him out, Elite Sports NY, Elite Sports New York. It is a really good website, some great writers. If you're not following if you're not following Rich, shame on you. But if you're not following Elite Sports New York, you're missing out. Uh, speaking of the the roster, let's assume Jed Lowry and Cespedes are healthy. That pretty much will make up the 13 positional player spots and that there's no injuries on the, the pitching front. There are some names coming out that uh, the Mets have said to look for, even going back to when Carlos Beltran was still the manager. Max Moroff, Jake Hager, David Peterson, the number one pick, has been impressive. Uh, Ryan Cordell, an outfielder. Any names that stand out to you guys that, you know, I'm not saying they're going to make the roster, but may contribute as a 26, 27, 28, 29, 30th man. Obviously, you need more than just six starters. You're going to have double headers. You're going to have injuries. Guys get pushed back, rainouts, whatever. Anybody standing out to you in your time that you were down in Port St. Lucie? I mentioned one guy, you know, uh, Cordell. I mean, uh, that's one guy. I, I think that they're going to go with uh, eight guys out of that bullpen for sure. And, um, you know, you look at Dom Smith, which I'm glad that they did not give up on him. And he's looking really good this spring. He worked hard in the offseason. Um, Jed Lowry out of the equation, of course, we may never see him be. I don't know what that contract's all about right now. The, um, I think what you're seeing now is what you're going to see during the season. I don't think you're going to see any of the other names that you just mentioned, Mike, being a part of this roster, because I really do believe that a Joanna Cespedes is going to be a part of the equation come opening day. Whether he starts or is off the bench, that's the question. But I think that's the, that's the key there. Cespedes has to play if he's ready to go. 
and uh, we haven't seen him yet in the spring game, but we should soon. I think within the, the next two weeks, you'll see Cespedes on the field. And I think that's what they're revolving around right now. How healthy is he going to be? Is he going to be ready? He'll, but I really do think that Cespedes will be coming back with this team up north opening day. And that'll answer a lot of questions about who's going to be on that roster. All those other guys, it's, I, I really don't know. I, it's too early to tell uh, if there's anybody in that group that could stand out to be a part of this now 26-man formula that baseball has gone to. Um, but uh, I, I think this right now, it, it Brody put together a good team. I, I really do believe that uh, this team is uh, going to be ready to go. And we'll see what happens in those early games in April with bad weather, cold weather, whatever. Uh, and no injuries, hopefully. But um, by the way, J.D. Davis is uh, getting back to health and should be back on the field maybe uh, – I mean, to be back in a spring game within the next, I would say, 10 days or so, he's looking good. So uh, it, it's it's optimistic. That's all I'm going to say. It's very optimistic. Rich Mancuso was down in Port St. Lucie this week. Uh, we're getting his take, early take on what's going on down there throughout the spring. We'll be checking in with those who have made the trek down to Florida. I thought it was interesting, uh, Rich, that, you know, the, Ken David off of the post and said how, well, this is a spring. There's no drama with the Mets. And it's <laughs> that's been one of the things that, well, the media is the reason why the drama gets uh, stirred up. But the Mets have done their part. And yeah, uh, looking at Cespedes, looking at – and he had every right to be angry with the media. They, I think they went overboard and making fun of the whole bore situation. But he said he wasn't going to talk. It was becoming a story. And then after I had yeah. the podcast last Sunday, I had the podcast early, right after I, I go and, and put it up, uh, here he is. He's talking. Maybe he has the interpreter with the media diffusing the situation. Do you think that's part of this uh, Luis Rojas effect? I mean, Rojas seems to be a guy that early on we had uh, Peter Carasotis of uh, who wrote a book about his father on this week. You know, there's a lot of positive stuff coming out. There was an article uh, in The Athletic about uh, Rojas. Do you think he's had that kind of effect where, you know, he dodged the question about Cespedes, he d- deflected, diffused, and then he just, you know, maybe he and Brody just said, hey, Joannis, just go out there, have a press conference, and notice it right. went away. He didn't say anything. He didn't say anything no. in the press conference. It just went away. So uh, right, what do you right. think? Is that, I mean, the, is that the Rojas influence? I, I – I think the Rojas influence had very minimal effect on it. I think that's more of a Mets uh, publicity, public relations strategy. And, and they do have doing that with the Mets right now. I mean, uh, the 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 strategy there with Seth, but it's always been, you know what? And I've always written about that. He's a diva. Do what you want. Um, but I think the Mets have a, a, a publicity team that knows how to diffuse situations, despite what many think. And I really do believe that they spoke to Cespedes and said, look, hey, go out there, get it over him, just like what you said. And he did. He handled it well. He just said what he had to say, and that was it. And, you know, Cespedes has never been media friendly. Let's face it. He's never been one of those that's going to face you and give you the answer you want. And it's very hard to approach and to get him. But, they did the right strategy with that. As far as Rojas getting involved with that, well, he's involved with everything. The manager right now involved with everything right there with the Mets. And 
I'm sure he had a say in the matter. At, uh, I don't know if there is a bondness or if they're very close. I doubt that very much. One thing I've noticed about the this Luis Rojas is through everything that's gone on, and at the short time he's been, he's gained control. He has control, and he's taken control, and he has the respect. He has a respect of a guy that's been managing his team for a long time. Uh, whether that comes with his background and all previous, of course, he, he knows the organization. A lot of these guys know who he is, which adds to it. But, you know, when you get a guy who's been there not even, what, how long is it, Mike? Five weeks already? Six weeks? Maybe. Yeah, takes, about a month. Right, right? Sure. And he's taking, yeah. he's taking control and he's handled it real well. Now, we have not seen a situation of yet uh, really how we will handle a, a predicament as it comes up, and I'm sure they will be. That's where he's going to be tested. I don't think the Cespedes part has been a part of that. I think this was just something that was going to go on, and it was a matter of time when Joanna Cespedes had to speak, and he did. And I think, again, a lot of that came from the Mets public relations team that's a very good team that's in place that knows how to handle these situations. And then Brody got involved and, you know, they all came to an agreement. Hey, get out there, speak, say what you got to say, that's it. And we're done for now. Okay. Now the question is, is when will he be ready? Will he be on the roster by opening day? And I truly believe he will be. Rich Mancuso, Elite Sports New York. Rich, before we wrap up, give me one thing to be really excited about so far in your early observations about the Mets give me the one thing that you're a little bit worried about we got to do the sunny side and the, and the storm clouds to wrap up here well of course everybody's concerned about the bullpen and Edwin Diaz and Familia and Diaz today if you saw the game was I did watch he was a little better from his first outing uh, and that's going to be a key. That's the worry, the bullpen. And on paper, again, as I've said, bullpen is got, it's one of the best in baseball, on paper at least. What they will do is another thing. And we have to see that. And it's going to be very, very interesting to watch this bullpen, what they do in that first month of the season. The schedule, you know, let's say the Mets are in the division. They play who they got to play. And they got to win those games early because I'll always say, April games are important to win as more as they are in September. You lose these games in April, they come back to haunt you in September when you need them and you're in a thick of a race where the Mexicans are expected to be. What what you have to see is the bullpen do what they got to do. One left hand that looks like it's going to be Justin Wilson, that's a concern. The lineup, it should do what they have to do. And I like what Robinson Cano has been doing this spring. And he had, a, he had a great at bat today. And Michael Conforto hit a spring home run today, a nice one to right field. And I've always said, Mike, you know that, and the fans know how I feel about Conforto. The lineup is not Alfonso, McNeil, and Rosario, and all, all those others. That middle, where Conforto would be, it's so important for him to be consistent. And you got to look for Conforto to be consistent more so than hitting 30 home runs, driving in 90 runs. He can't strike out like he's done the last two years, and he's got to stay healthy. He's got to stay on the field. Michael Conforto's a key. Robinson Cano's a key in that lineup. If he's going to play 140 games or more, like he says, he's got to stay healthy. But, on you know, that lineup is pretty good if those guys produce. 
And uh, then you get a question of where do you put McNeil or Rosario? Who leads off? Nimmo probably will lead off. He's healthy. Nothing wrong with him. You know, let's just say this, Mike. They're looking good. It's very promising for this team. That's all I'm going to say. Down there, I saw it. I intend to go back before the season opens up again. This team is very promising. They're going to be in it all year. It's a tough division. It's a matter of them being consistent, the bullpen, and, of course, staying healthy. You can follow Rich Mancuso on Twitter at Ring786, Elite Sports New York. If you're a boxing fan, nobody better to still catch up on uh, the ring than uh, Rich. Rich, anything you got going on other than another trip to spring training? Anything you want the listeners to know about? It's March Madness now, and I'm not just talking basketball (laughs) because we're going to – I've got a lot of boxing to do. I've got the season to focus on coming up. So a lot of that. There as well with NYCFC here at Yankee Stadium, where they play sometimes, sometimes they don't. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it's just March, and they're getting ready for the baseball season. When you hear that the baseball season is three weeks away, you got to smile. And for Mets fans, you have to smile. Be optimistic because this team is going to be something special this year. I truly do believe it. And again, my closing remarks, that bullpen has to come through. And and it's going to revolve around Edwin Diaz, and let's see what Batandas has in store when he's ready. Rich, be well. Always a pleasure. We'll talk again, I'm sure, before the season. Always, Mike. During the season. You're the best. Talk to you soon, buddy. Thank you, my friend. Bye-bye. That's Rich Mancuso, Elite Sports New York. Love uh, talking to him, catching up. Our first little look in, peek in to Port St. Lucie. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. Bill Ripken's latest, it's called, and your first. But no, it's not your first. He's you and Cal have written a bunch of books together. We've written two together. This is all different. So that's, thing, a, that's my this first, is, this like, is a solo. That's my first hunt and peck. And by using the notes column on my iPad, sending what I put together to Moses Messina and said, please put this in a format that I can understand. I, I, I got to jump in because I had the, the opportunity to write something. For and me. that's awesome, by the way. By the way, Ken Rosenthal wrote the forward for me. And I thought he did a great job because he's not going to say, hey, listen to Bill Ripken. He knows everything about the game. He says quite the opposite. He doesn't know everything about the game, but he needs to be heard. And when I reach out to my man H, you want to read that for me right there? Well, yeah. Come on. I, I, I'm just Because you made me almost did cry. Did you really write this or did you? Yeah. Yeah, I wrote okay. this. Dude. Right. What do we got? Ten, ten minutes. when I, You were in the World Series, and I texted him. Bill Ripken is not only one of the greatest teachers the game has ever seen, but also one of the most intelligent baseball people I've ever been around. He has a unique ability to see the game at full speed. That's my favorite part. Slow it down, dissect it, and then spit it out in simple terms that a 10-year-old or a 10-year-old Major League veteran can grasp. So I must say... Come on, H. I must say this to you. That's Where'd killing that come the game. From? <laughs> where, where did that come from would be my question as we wrap this segment up. I got a chapter in there on senior because everything I have came from senior, especially in the baseball world. And Dad was able to teach all the simple parts of the game because, you know, you end the game with a double play. It's the coolest thing ever. You know that. But it's a catch, throw, catch, throw, catch. It's five simple parts. And his dad would say, if you don't do the first one, son, you ain't got nothing. So mm. you, you really simplify things. And I can get as complex as you want talking about this game. I really can. Wow. But my dad's influence on me and Junior, I think, shaped us. Look, Junior would not be a Hall of Famer without Senior's influence. I believe that. He'd have played in the big leagues. I'm not so sure I would have. 
at my size and my talent, but Senior's influence on us in different ways actually aided us, and it was all about simplifying the game, breaking down the complex into the simple. Joining me, Bill Ribkin, longtime big leaguer. You guys know him from the MLB Network. He has a new book out, State of Play, The Old School Guide to New School Baseball, Diversion Books. It just came out. Very interesting conversation, a look at analytics from a different point of view. And, Bill, welcome to the program. And uh, never would think a guy playing in the 80s, uh, the Ribkin family, talking about analytics, uh, it's a different type of topic for you. Welcome to the program, and, and thanks for coming on. Well, I think what's interesting about it is I think people have forgotten or lost sight or just been misinformed that old school guys like me have always used numbers and have always used information to come up with a plan. So I think when I take a look at this this new school approach nowadays and that the, the term analytics gets thrown out there so much, I think you'll find through the book, I use numbers and information to kind of dismiss some of these new terms that are out there, but using numbers is what us old school guys have always done. No doubt. You know, if you think back, Tony La Russa, Davey Johnson, uh, even Jimmy Leland, those were guys when you played managers, and it's funny now because it's all about the front office, they were ahead of their times. They would do innovative things. Uh, even Jim Leland, uh, and I think you mentioned the Pirates in your book, the way he manufactured lineups and, and always uh, in-game managing. So it, it's not something that's uh, 2020 when it comes to, uh, I guess, innovation in the dugout. No, I don't believe so either. In fact, there was one of those old school guys you left off of that list was Buck Showalter. And Buck managed in the minor leagues. His wife would sit in the stands with different colored pencils and chart the uh, where the opposing hitters hit the ball. So I don't know what year that was, but obviously Buck enjoyed a long career in the big leagues as a manager. But So got to go back before that. And, and it's it's just the idea, okay, we do have more information. There's no question about it. But some of the terms that are being just thrown out there and almost taken as gospel as like legitimate statistics, it, it kind of bugs me a little bit because I think we're misleading uh, baseball fans when we use certain terms. One, I think we're trying to create this impression that some of these new terms that we use, first of all, they've always been around. The fact that you can measure something and name something doesn't necessarily make it new. So. Uh, I, it's not this new wave of this rush of new things coming into the game. It's some some of the same old stuff that just happens to get measured in name now. And you mentioned there's a little bit of the propaganda from the media. Remember, some of this stuff that has been created, whether it be by websites or individuals, <clears throat> there's nothing wrong with it. But there's also a profit center, an industry, jobs. I mean, many jobs have been created uh, you know, from analytics. And I think at times I've said – it's creating some polarizing, sometimes nasty debates. I go back to Burt Blylevin and his Hall of Fame candidacy and, and how wins were being debated. Uh, you know, when Harold Baines, uh, I think a former teammate of yours, made the Hall of Fame a year ago, you know, that brought into analytics and, and things like that. So uh, there's that point where it's not just about the analytics. I think people feel they're being attacked by what potentially their value or their position in the game, what they bring, and, and obviously a job attached to it. Yeah, well, look, they, there's a, let's just look at it as if there were trees, and the new school tree sits over there, and there's a couple branches probably on the new school tree that are pretty smug and pretty arrogant. Then you have a old school tree, 
and there's a couple branches on the old school tree that have some bullies hanging out on it. Um, those sets of branches that I just talked about, they're never, ever going to get along, and they probably shouldn't get along with the rest of the tree on the other side anyway. So I think what we've done is there's some extreme new schoolers and there's some extreme old schoolers, and those two groups will not get together. But I do believe there's a place, and there has always been a place for the old school guy to accept more information. I'm asking if the old school guy looks at the information, legitimately looks at the information and says, that doesn't work for me, I don't want him to be labeled rigid or unwilling or unable to conform to the new way of thinking because he's a thinker in his own right. He just looks at the information and says, this does not apply to the game the way you think it does. The book is State of Play, The Old School Guide to New School Baseball. Bill Ribkin, former big leaguer, you uh, see him on MLB Network, is with me. You uh, mentioned, and, and look, because I, I, I do this, I'm part of the saturation, so I'm as guilty as, as the rest, that with all the saturation, and you, you talked about it just a couple of minutes ago, there's a lot of information out there. Uh, I would say the, the one thing to think about is, you're right, there's a responsibility of the, the listener or the reader to parse through it and decide what's good and what's bad. That's in media in general. But I think it's better now in some ways because of all the information, because of the reporting, not just in analytics, but the understanding of the game. As You can't quite get into the clubhouse. You can't quite get down on the field. But I think there's a better understanding of what goes on in part to analytics, but in part to the somewhat of the what you call in the book the saturation of all the media information out there. What, what do you think about that? Well, well, the, the saturation, so some of the terms that I think um, you, you might be referencing when I say, okay, there's a little bit of a watered-down effect going, which, in my opinion, when we use terms, and I'm going to throw DRS out there for the first one. DRS was created because the new schoolers don't believe that the old school error column matters, which I certainly still believe the error column matters because if you make less errors than the other team, you win league-wide 62% of the time. You win 62% of the time you're in the playoffs every single year. So DRS has come in, and it's kind of been the product of what UZR was modified. And now I even hear more things being said this offseason going into spring training that OAA is starting to take the lead over DRS, which is outs above average. So these are numbers that are coinciding with a formula that's locked behind closed doors. So after the 2018 season, uh, Matt Chapman of the Oakland A's was listed at uh, 29 defensive runs safe. Nolan Arenado, third baseman with the Rockies, pretty good, by the way, was listed at six. The numbers tell me that Chapman's five times better than a defender than Nolan Arenado. And my old school eyes tell me that's not the case because I've watched them both play. And if you want to tell me Matt Chapman and Nolan Arenado are equal, we can have a debate. Or which one's slightly better, we can have a debate. But when you look at numbers like that, and then we use them at the end of the year, and we make statements, even at the network, um, okay, so-and-so led all the baseball with defensive runs saved, that's very misleading to me because I don't think it's real. I don't think it's accurate. And no defensive run saved number actually has anything to do with the defensive run saved. And once again, up at the network, I believe I have the best researchers available to me. And I can watch a week's worth of time where a shortstop's playing really well and I hit, get into their ear during the commercial break and say, hey, what did that do for his DRS? And they go, I don't know. I can't tell you. And I say, well, sure, you can tell me. I'm your friend. 
And they go, no, it's locked away behind closed doors. I don't know the formula they use. I don't know what that means. So if we actually make formulas behind closed doors and then we throw numbers out there at the end of the day, I just can't jump on board with those numbers, but yet those numbers are used and almost used as gospel. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I would say on the defensive side of the ball, it's so much harder to use analytics. And I know they've got the Hawkeye now, and I'm sure it'll get better. I mean, I, I remember talking about baseball. I actually talked to you maybe over a decade ago when you had your, your, you know, your book that came out with your brother. Um, and the game has changed so much. But I think on the defensive side, it's so hard to put a quantified number because when people say when a new player comes to the team, well, he's a good defensive player. What does that mean? I could go to fan graphs and I could look it up and the numbers are all over the place. But until you talk to a scout or a, a broadcaster, radio, television, say, talk to me about that, you just, you just don't know. And I think defense is where analytics hasn't really bridged the gap, in my opinion. I think you talked about that just now. Yeah, and, and here's a good point, because you just said, so someone comes up and joins a team. Um, let's say he comes up through the minor leagues. Now, I know that they're trying to do all those things in the minor leagues, but what you said is I believe in wholeheartedly so much. If a guy's coming up, the big league manager needs to be talking to the AAA manager, the AA manager, who the guy played for, and the manager before that. What would you see with this kid? Because I, I've stated this in the book, too. I love information. I, I do. I'll use it if it's good. But if you give me a crusty old dude in the minor leagues that's been there, done it, developed players to get to the big league level, I'm going to take his two eyeballs over any spreadsheet any day of the week um, because you need those eyes on the kids to actually give you a determination. One, I think we've lost sight. Can he play or can he not play? Um, tools and individual metrics that can be on display can be pretty impressive. But if the tools and individual metrics on display don't mesh with your club and there's some sort of lacking fundamental knowledge that this player may have, then he leans more into the can't play category than he can in the can play. I couldn't agree more. And tools now are driving prospect rankings, which are driving media pressure and the evaluation of deals. I mean, look, GMs uh, uh, have a harder job now for a variety of reasons, but I think all this information too, because of the uh, nature of fans thinking they know more, they, nobody ever knows uh, the organization unless they're in the organization. And you said just because a player has tools doesn't mean they can play. Um, there's plenty of players you played with back in the eighties. I'm sure they had bodies like Adonis. Uh, they probably hit 220. <laughs> and I think that that, and I, I'm not going to name them and put you on the spot because one of them is coming to mind now, but I don't want to do that to you. But, um, uh, you know, you, it's the like prospect ranking. They're starting to come out. Uh, people take them as gospel. And I'm like, oh, my God. Right. I mean, do we know if this guy could play? And and uh, we, we assume, I mean, you know, here in New York, Jared Kelnick, very talented player, got traded for in the Cano deal. They have him in the Hall of Fame. And I'm like, well, he hasn't taken that bad above double A. So it's crazy how we've really and, and I think it goes back to what you said about the information. Uh, we've made uh, assumptions based on numbers and in this case, uh, body type, maybe, that uh, a player is going to do exactly what we think. You know what? You mentioned the Mets, so I want to bring DeGrom into the mix, into this conversation, because he's made himself the best pitcher in the National League. And once again, not the big win total, and I believe that's because, you know, his club just doesn't give him any runs. So I'm willing to 
overlook some wins. I still think wins matter, but I, they think they just don't win. They don't matter as much as they used to. But I want to use DeGrom for an example because some of the information out there over the past few years was this constant talk of the high fastball is in. It's counteracting everybody's launch angle revolution, which is another just ridiculous term. Um, and what Jacob DeGrom does better than every pitcher in baseball is he dots a Nats rear end on the outside corner, low and away to a right-hand hitter on the first pitch, better than everybody else. So Jacob DeGrom pitches ahead an awful lot. So in this world where we think you have to throw high fastball, DeGrom can throw one, but his separator is he steals strike one low and away. He kind of reminds me, if I'm going to go back into yesteryear, of Brett Saberhagen. When you faced Brett Sabreg and you knew 94 was coming down and away outside corner, so you had two choices. You take it for strike one, or you hit a ground ball to the second baseman or shortstop, and it's one pitch, one out. And DeGrom has separated himself in a world where I don't think he gets caught up in the noise of a whole lot of stuff. I think he goes out there, gets ahead of hitters. He's got great stuff. Um, I don't care what his spin rate is. I don't care what on his fastball. I don't care what his spin rate is on his breaking ball. He goes strike one down and away better than any pitcher in the game right now. And I think that's his main separator is he's, he's able to hit the outside corner and still strike one a lot. You, you make a great point about how he's pitching to what makes him good. And I heard Rick Porcello talk about uh, earlier this spring about how maybe last year he got away from what his strengths were and, and he cited, you know, analytics maybe and what they were telling him as to his struggles. Uh, Kyle Hendricks, I think was on, uh, an interview uh, just a few days ago saying, hey, you know, I got guys that do the analytics. They want to give me information. That's great. I'm not sitting here studying and looking at that stuff. And I think obviously that creates new coaches and things like that. But that's going to be the challenge for players. Now, you think back to when you played. Yeah, you had information. Now you have video in game. I mean, Noel's joking aside with the Astros. You have video in game. You could analyze your swing. You could analyze a tons of things. And at some point, do you pitch to your strength? Do you play to your strength? Or do you look at the weakness of the opposition and go towards that? And it's not an easy answer, I would think. And I think it makes it harder for the player now to look at their game and decide, you know, which way do I go, especially with the pressure of competing and winning in, in an era where, you know, especially veterans, they're not getting long-term contracts as much as they used to. Right. Well, you look at that, and I believe what you were hitting on is go with your strengths because your strengths are your strengths. And this whole thought process of the high fastball is, is in vogue. This is being used now. Okay, Palmer, Bob Gibson, Sandy Koufax, Burt Blylevin, Doc Gooden. They all did it because they had the overhand hammer to go with it. Um, then there was that craze that went through for a while with the Kevin Browns and Scott Erickson and Billy Swift, you know, the sinker slider guys. And baseball has always been cyclical. It will continue to be cyclical. The Braves had a pretty good run with the fastball changeup combination and everybody is different in the game Mike Soroka had a pretty good year with the Atlanta Braves last year he sank or slider and that's his strength and that's how he's going to pitch so having information is good there's no question about it but if if you're not a four seam up in the zone guy you prefer the down and away uh sinker to left-hand hitters or maybe down and into the right hand hitter sinker um, and that's your pitch, you have to use your pitch because if you get away from your strengths, the, the reason why you were drafted and the reason why you got to the big leagues in the first place was your strengths. So to try to uh, ignore that moving forward just because numbers say this is where we need to pitch or this is what we should be looking at, that doesn't necessarily work all the time. 
we were talking about defensive metrics earlier, and I was thinking back to some of the other metrics, and you bring them up in the book. By the way, the book is State of Play, the old school guide to new school baseball. And I think Bill is doing a good job of uh, really trying to get people to think because there's a lot of zero-sum thinking out there. Um, I think about the Hall of Fame debate, but I think about Scott Rowland and when he was on the ballot earlier this year, and I started looking at his case, and I said, you know – I remember Scott Rowland. I watched Scott Rowland. He was always a very good player in my mind. But as you use things like wins above replacement or OPS plus, and then you start comparing and filtering uh, when you compare it to other third basemen across uh, different eras, he stacked up pretty well. And I'm like, that's a different Hall of Fame candidacy than I would have thought just by hearing the name Scott Rowland. Are you using any analytics or is there any player similar to my story about Scott Rowland that you now have a different appreciation of, whether it be a Hall of Fame candidacy or just in general that you played with, uh, you know, during your career. Well, I'm still a, the old school counter um, counting stats numbers. I think as they're referred to now, and I think it's very safe, safe to say if you had 300 and hit 30 and driving 100, you had a pretty good year. Um, all the other numbers kind of like blend into the mix on that one. With Scotty Rowland, it was interesting because I looked some at some of his numbers. I kind of went games played with Scotty Rowland. He really wasn't that durable over the course of his year. Um, he would be one guy that if I was talking to kids about pregame work and how you go about your business, Scotty Rowland would be at the top of my list because I watched him take pregame ground balls, um, set his feet, move his feet, throw, um, and everything it looked like he was doing in warm-ups and in practice was real. And to me, that's how you got better, and that's why Scotty Rowland was as good as he was. But there's something in my mind, and I'm definitely going to go on the side of the small hall school, and I just believe that his games played, his injuries, his sideline time, kind of just kept him a little bit on the outside of this um, this 1%, shall we say, looking in. But I think if he'd have been more durable and would have played more games during the course of his career – then I'm going to probably lean towards the fact that he was a Hall of Famer. But I, I got to have a guy out there. There needs to be a separator for me. And the separator from those guys that are that good to go in the Hall of Fame, usually they're 150 games a year played as far as a position player a year. It's amazing listening to you talk. And if I remember uh, when Cal, your brother, used to have an MLB network radio show, he used to bring on former big leaguers. And one of the things he liked to do was talk about their routine and preparation. And, you know, here in New York, you know, a new manager uh, with the Mets. And, and one of the things they're touting, uh, you know, obviously he's part of the Alou family tree there, Luis Rojas, is the attention to detail, the prep. A lot of these boring things that when you hear him talk in a press conference, it's the same thing. We're preparing for the season, you know, drills. Uh, small details, you know, the GM Brody Van Wagen is talking about the marginal things that were the difference between their 86 win club and maybe the Nats who are 91 wins and champions. Uh, it's amazing. It's really a boring game inherently. Uh, and then you've got the media trying to turn it into something more and that's their job. But it all comes down to what you said. And I remember what Cal used to say, what's your routine? Can you stay consistent? Can you stay disciplined? Uh, and as, not just as an individual, as a team. And, and analytics is supposed to help that, but in some ways it's complicating that. Uh, I think the, the complicated part is what jumped out at me first and foremost. The fact that it, it could be a boring game, uh, my father would always say it. You hit it, pitch it, catch it better than the other team, and you win. And I don't think in all the conversation that's swirled around this game now that how much it's changed, how much this has changed, how much that has changed, I still think that the basics – of the game, if you just watch a game 
the team that wins looks very similar to the team that won in the 90s, the 80s, the 70s, and the 60s. They go out there and execute some of the boring things of the game better than the other team. Now, if you listen to a broadcast of a game or listen to the radio, you hear things that you haven't heard, you know, maybe ever. And that kind of complicates the, the simple routine of pitch it, hit it, catch it better than the other team, and you win. Can't argue with that. Uh, with that said, there's a lot of changes potentially coming to the game. And the first one that I, I wanted to ask you about a few of these before I let you go, there's talk about expanding the playoffs. Nearly 50% of the league it, it may make the playoffs. The Athletic ran in, uh, a run, and it, it basically said that they'll be under this rule or potential rule. Uh, teams with 79 wins would make the playoffs. I, I tie it into a little bit of analytics and tanking. I think it's easy for a general manager to take a job, tear it down, sell their owner on a five-year plan, sell on you know prospect and prospect rankings. And at some point, you'll be accountable, but you give yourself about five years to figure the job out, especially if you're new <laughs> to the job. And I think – I mean, and that's the thing. I mean, job security with 30 jobs is you know, part of it. Let's, and, and it saves – listen, it saves the owner's money. I don't want to put you on the spot here, but that's, that's the truth. Um, by lowering the bar at the playoffs, I feel they're artificially trying to force – those same teams, well, if I'm at 500, five games under July, I can make the playoffs. And then once you're in the playoffs, it's a tournament. You know that, and I know that. And that's been the case since, you know, you played, since the dawn of time. It's a seven-game, five-game, whatever series. I don't like it. I, I wouldn't mind them going back to the old ALS, AL East, AL West, NL East, NL West, and maybe have four wild cards. But I feel to just lower the bar because we can't get teams to compete and win – you could rebuild and win. It's been done. Your team, the 88 Orioles, was awful. They were nearly a playoff team a year later. So I just don't get – I worry that we're really starting to meld the league to some of these idiosyncrasies to, to force people to compete. It bothers me a lot. Yeah, that's a valid point. And here's something to think of. I'm, not, I'm okay with adding maybe another playoff team each league, but I'd like to coincide that maybe a few years down the road when we actually have expansion – so if we had six in each league, that's 12. And if we had 32 teams, that means 20. Don't make the playoffs. I think that's a little bit better of a scenario. Look, I was a fan of the wild card coming in. Um, I thought it added some excitement. I was a fan of the second wild card coming in because I'm pretty sure that did the same. And look what the Washington Nationals were able to do last year. Uh, they were losing, what, through eight against the Brew Crew. And they come back and win that game, and then they go on to win the World Series. So it doesn't necessarily lower the bar so much. I agree with you. I don't want to see a sub-500 team pushing the playoffs. Uh, I, I don't think that sends a good message for everything. We play a 162 for a reason. We're the, the longest season sport going, and it seems like hockey and basketball, they almost have a full season of playoffs once they uh, make the teams the way they do their playoff setup. So I'm okay with the idea of kicking stuff around, but maybe that should coincide closure to expansion and make a big uh make make a big bang then you like the three batter rule that's coming in i'm I'm ambivalent about it yeah i, I want to see how this plays out i'm not going to be an overreact knee-jerk guy on this one with uh oh i can't believe this because i actually think what we were doing was a little bit of a travesty and if we have to force people's hands uh, to maybe go with their starter a little bit longer because i still think if i'm going back to the nats and astros again in the World Series, their starting pitchers went out there and, and towed the slab a lot. And I still think that that's the way to build this. So maybe somewhere in baseball, we figured out a way, okay, let's try to force you guys 
to uh, actually do something that we already know, and that's put your starting pitchers out there and pitch a little bit longer. And I think this three batter minimum may have a little effect on that. So I want to see this thing play out for at least half a year before I kind of pass judgment on it. A couple of other potential rules changes I want to get your uh, thought on. One, um, not for automated strike zones ever. I mean, maybe I'm, I'm being closed-minded there. Two, I'm all for universal DH. Now, you were an American League guy as a player. Uh, I, I ran some numbers, just one team, and I think if you just played with pitchers hitting, it was about two weeks of baseball. It's like almost like a homestand where that only pitchers would hit. Not a lot of offense coming out of that. So I think that would help the game a little bit. What are your thoughts on those two uh, uh, things? All right, the DH needs to be in both legs. The National League is the only league in baseball that has the pitcher hitting. <clears throat> and I mean no Japan, no Korea, no AAA. Well, AAA, when two National League clubs play each other, they have the option of using a DH, and I'm sure they opt in on that. AA, uh, DH, A-ball, DH, rookie ball, DH, college, DH, high school, DH. How can the National League be the only league in all of baseball that has the pitcher hit? And, in fact, there were pitchers that were getting their first professional at bat last year in the big leagues. So if we're clamoring about needing more offense in the game, why would we put somebody out there hitting 111 when the average DH across the board, I believe, was like 250 with 24 homers? So if you want to find more offense, let's get the pitcher out of there and let's have DH in both leagues. The robo-umps interesting. We have the technology to grade umpires pretty well on ball strikes. I don't, I don't know how we use that information when we grade them. So if we use the information and we say, okay, you're the best ball strike umpires and I'm just making you ball strike umpires, maybe we can stave off robo-ump. But if we keep this rotation going around of third, second, first, and home plate, so 25% of the time he's a home plate umpire and he's not a very good ball strike umpire, we know their names because they take their mask off and throw players out when players yell at them for missing pitches. Um, so if we have the capability of getting good ball strike umpires, that should be their only job. I'll pay them more. The base umpires that get to use instant repay play, I'm going to pay them less. But uh, if the umpires don't come around with some sort of thinking where they're going to try to get better at their craft, I think they're going to force Major League Baseball's hand, and one day there will be a robo-ump in a big league stadium. I've never thought of it that way with just the home plate umpire. That's very interesting. A uh, couple of quick more things. Uh, replay. Uh, are we going a road too far when we're trying to zoom in, looking at the inch, the foot off the base, uh, holding the game up? I know they're going to reduce the time. I like replay, but I think, you know, bang, bang, double play, and I'm looking at it, and I know I'm looking at it at home or in the press box, and it's hard. It's not what they have in, in Chelsea. Uh, I don't think that was the point of replay. I think it's more to be the egregious. Do you agree with that? I agree. I, I want a fifth guy up in the booth, not an umpire, though. I want a former player. And I think you can agree with this. Within 10 seconds, we watch a replay one time, and we know if the guy's out or safe. And I think you can do sure. that about 80% of the time. So if I got a guy up in the booth, he hits a buzzer that buzzes the home plate umpire. The home plate umpire walks to the pitcher's mound, shows them a couple new baseballs, saying, which one do you like? They're looking at it upstairs. By the time the umpire gets back behind home plate, that guy up in the booth makes the determination. No more replay room down by the dugouts. Um, managers can't have 30 seconds to think about it. Um, it's just an automatic close play. Let the fifth guy in the booth do it that's a former player, and he makes the determination out or safe. 
Last thing, uh, and I know everybody, um, I'm at least I am tired of the sign stealing thing. I know the importance. I know it's a big story, but now we're getting into the next phase of this as as we're hoping that it dies down a little bit, and it's stripping titles and changing results. And in some ways, it you know run differential. You bring that up in your book. Sometimes uh, fans or media will say, well, that team didn't deserve X Y Z because of run differential, or they were lucky, or whatever. And I know that there's some v- validity to that, but. I'm not in favor of changing history, whether it be in sports or other aspects of life. You can learn from history, and certainly you should have the discussion and about how we could prevent something from happening again. But to strip a title, I don't agree with it with the NCAA. Uh, I know the kids suffer in that situation. The, the next generation of kids suffer, not the people that did the bad deed. But you just can't change history. We saw the Astros win. We know what happened. We know what happened after. Uh, I hope we don't really take this seriously, and I hope the dialogue goes away. We've got politicians involved now. That's silly uh, with all that's going on in the world. Uh, what's Bill Ripken's thoughts on that? Because I'm not for stripping titles or changing history. No, you you can't strip a title. They won. Um, I think it's very clear. Everybody in baseball understands how they won, what they did to win. They cheated. Um, but you can't go back through and take the, the, the trophy away from them. That would open up Pandora's box to go through the history books and start changing things all the way through because of certain things. They were punished. I think the commissioner spoke pretty loudly. And the individual players, whether they don't have any punishment right now, their individual reputations, along with the team's reputation, took a major hit. And we'll be talking about the 2017 Astros players and championship team for 40 years from now, basically saying it was very tainted. Um, so I think that that's all understood, but no, you cannot go back and say, okay, you didn't win. Uh, we're taking it away. Do you just give it to the runner up? That's, that's not the way it works. It's over. It's done. Hopefully we can move forward and baseball will be better for it in the next few years. Bill, do you ever look at your advanced statistics from when you played? I was just playing around on baseball reference before we talked. And it's like, if you want to just use wins above replacement, 80% of those wins came in the, your one season, 1990. Do you ever play around with it and say, does that make sense based on what I remember? Just curious about that. Well, you don't need to be curious because no is the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> the book is State of Play, the old school guide to new school baseball. Bill, do you have any events coming up? Anything you want the listeners to know about about this book? Very interesting dialogue. Very interesting conversation. No, just go check it out on Amazon. If you're a Prime member, you hit that button and you get it pretty quick. Bill, you've been generous of your time on a weekend. Thanks again. We'll talk soon, all right? All right, dude. Take care. Bill Ribkin. Former big leaguer, author of the book State of Play, The Old School Guide to New School Baseball. You will not see Billy Ribkin on baseball reference. Let's put it that way. All right, let's take a quick break. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon. And enjoy the rest of the show. All right, we had a pretty action-packed show. I won't keep you much longer as we uh, pretty much are up against the hour here. And I thought Bill had a lot of interesting things to say. Bill Ribkin, 
The book is State of Play, the old school guide to new school baseball. And and really, I think what he's trying to do is uh, give us some things to think about as we try to combine the stats and the on the field and the anecdotal uh, with what we know as fans and as media and podcasts and all the things that we kind of go through and bringing it together so that we under the, understand the game in a more mature way uh, and in, in, increases our knowledge and intelligence and also makes it fun because ultimately this is what this is all about. It's fun. As far as Rich, I thought Rich gave us some really good stuff uh, down in Port St. Lucie. There'll be more to, of that. We'll get more contributors calling in and letting us know what's going on in Mets camp as now it's March. And like Rich said, it's three weeks away. The opening day is early this year, as it seems like it's going to be from now on. So uh, you can't, you don't have much time left. It looks like uh, we're going to be in the dog days of spring training, the dog days of March, I like to call them, those first dog days. There's the dog days of August, then there's the dog days of March where you're pretty much ready for the season to start. Let's go and, and get on to the real games and the and the pennant and uh, the drive to what, what this is all about, which is winning division, winning the pennant and going after it. So that'll be very soon, but we'll continue to bring to you what we do here weekly on the Talking Mets podcast. I want to thank Bill Ripkin, of course, again, check out his book, State of Play, The Old School Guide to New School Baseball. I want to thank our friend Rich Mancuso, Elite Sports New York, at Ring786. Of course, you can check me out all the time at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. You could also send me an email, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com, and you could get the show, as always, on whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast next week. Till then, take care, everybody. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yep, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now, but I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR.